What a glorious truth that is this morning, my church. If you will, join with me in your Bibles in Nehemiah chapter 10. We just read from the text, and this morning we will continue our study of the book of Nehemiah. As I said a little bit ago, the chapter before us this morning is really the culmination of chapters 8 and 9. By way of reminder, chapter, in chapter 8, we saw the movement of God to bring a genuine revival among His people. By God's grace, His people were given a hunger for God's Word, and in the hearing of it, they were convicted of their sin and moved to repentance. In chapter 9, last week, Greg taught us that we find the people of God confessing and recounting the ways that they and their forefathers had rebelled against God. Now, here in chapter 10, the people, led by key leaders in their midst, come to renew their covenant with God that He had established with them at Mount Sinai. As such, the, the main takeaway, the, the big idea of chapter 10 is this. Restoration of fellowship with God centers on the worship of God in accordance with the Word of God. Restoration of fellowship with God centers on the worship of God in accordance with the Word of God. And the way the author advances this main idea is by way of describing two areas of focus for the people of Israel. Those two areas of focus are are their contrite hearts and their concentration on worship. Those two areas of focus will serve as our sermon points this morning. Now, if you're familiar with the way that uh, covenants work throughout the Scriptures, we're immediately met with something that seems rather odd in the text this morning. Picking up in chapter 9, verse 38, in light of the great confession that was just made by the people of Israel, we read there in chapter 9, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Yet throughout redemptive history, we don't find that it is God's people who initiate covenants with Him. Covenants are the the, the means by which God has determined to relate to His people. A covenant is a a binding agreement between two parties. They were common in the ancient world. And as such, God had determined to use something familiar to make known to His people how He would interact with them. But, But the way that covenants worked in the ancient world was that a superior party would initiate and outline the stipulations of the relationship. Each party had responsibilities to carry out, but the the parameters of the covenant were always set by the superior party. The inferior party was actually not even able to negotiate the terms of the agreement. the, the, The terms of the agreement. And so, God, throughout redemptive history, has always acted in this way with his people. In the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and now in the new covenant, God initiates and stipulates the terms of his relationship to his people. So then, it's odd when we read this text that we see that the people 
are making covenant with God. How is that possible? A covenant's a binding agreement. Man can't bind God to anything. But what we must realize is that they're not actually making a covenant here. The word covenant actually doesn't even appear in the original text. The language of covenant is used, but the term itself isn't. And what we're to understand here is that the people of God are not making a covenant with God. Rather, in the spirit of revival among them, they are renewing the covenant that God had made with them through Moses. After recognizing that they had spent many years in sin and rebellion against God, failing to obey his commandments that he laid out in the Mosaic Covenant, they they sought now to renew their commitment to God through a renewed commitment to his law. And this wasn't unprecedented in Israel's history. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, when a new generation had arisen after the generation that had wandered the desert due to their sin, and when Joshua rose up to succeed Moses in the leadership of Israel, Moses leads the people there in covenant renewal. Just as we find in this chapter, it's there that Moses reminds the people of their commitments to God and the consequences of violating his commandments. So now, in Nehemiah chapter 10, as the Jews have come out of Babylonian captivity and they've restored the temple and the city of Jerusalem, they are moved to restore their fellowship with God. And as they undertake this endeavor of reconciling, their, rather recommitting themselves to God, what we find really here is what should be expected where the people of God are found everywhere. And that is, we find that those in positions of leadership lead by example. Again, we find from chapter 9, verse 38, on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And with a seamless transition, chapter 10 opens with a list of these men's names on the seals. All the assembly of Israel was renewing their covenant with God, but of course, practically, it would be hard to attach that many names to the document. And additionally, these men here, in in taking a stand and putting their names down as the representatives of and and the leaders of Israel, they are really taking a stand in no small way. As much as the revival had broken out among God's people and stirred the whole nation to recommit themselves to God, it's always true that when leaders are found to be genuinely committed to their cause, it brings confidence to those that they are leading. This could be illustrated in a number of ways. But it was found to be true even this past week in the struggle taking place in Ukraine. Regardless of anyone's opinion of what's going on there, one thing can't be denied, and that is that the actions of the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, have consistently strengthened the resolve of the Ukrainian citizens. Last week, when diplomats all over the globe were offering to get Zelensky out of the country, he publicly responded, saying, I don't need you to send me a way out. I need you to send me ammunition. 
And, and it, it was observed that this statement further solidified the resolve of his people. Instead of hypocritically asking people to fight while he flees, he demonstrated that he is equally resolved to stand against the, the Russian opposition alongside his people. And this is really exactly what we're observing in this chapter. These leaders are equally committed to pursuing fellowship with God through obedience to His Word. They're not hypocritically demanding a piety among the people of God while continuing in rebellion themselves. They're they're putting their names down, effectively putting their names on the line. And as the assembly takes this oath before the Lord, while a curse is invoked on all who would violate the commands of the covenant, their names were explicitly set down so as to remove all doubt about their accountability before God. And and this type of leadership is what we should see among God's people everywhere. But in an effort to restore fellowship with God, what exactly were these leaders and these people saying that they were accountable to. We get that these leaders were stepping up and putting their names down to say they were accountable to God. The people were taking an oath. But what is it that they were saying they were accountable to? Broadly speaking, they were recommitting themselves to be accountable to God's law. And as the passage continues, we find the commitment to God's law first evidenced by the display of contrite hearts. That is to say, repentant hearts hearts. We see this beginning in verse 28. Look there with me. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and statutes. Friends, there is much that is worthy to be teased out from this passage. These verses right here could occupy much of our time this morning, but, but I want you to notice the emphasis here. The commitment is to be a people who are set apart, a people who are distinct from the world in their worship of God. But but note the focus on God's law. We read that they have separated themselves from the peoples, the peoples of the land, to the law of God. Now, this is interesting because what we might expect to read here is that they separated themselves from the people of the land to God Himself. After all, isn't it fellowship and communion with God that they were seeking? Well, yes, but friends, the confusion about that can be cleared up simply with a follow-up question. Where is God made known? In His revealed Word. Specifically, in the Old Testament, God reveals Himself to His people in His written law. As such, we observe that in their quest to restore right relationship with God, they're restoring their submission to His Word. 
it's the Word of God in chapter 8 that exposed their sin and, and their disjointed relationship to God. And it's submission to the Word that will now lead them in fellowship with God. Church, what we observe here acts really as a rebuttal to all those who would say, you know, you people make too much of the Bible. And I know it's important and all, but I mean, it's almost like you all worship the Bible instead of God. Have you heard this before? I certainly have. And the, the problem with this way of thinking is that the people who think like this fail to see that in holding a high view of the Scriptures and remaining steadfast to the Word of God, we're not devoting ourselves to something other than God. When we give ourselves to the Word of God, we're giving ourselves to God as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. Rather than making a God of our own liking... We believe and submit our lives solely to the God who's made Himself known in His Word. Otherwise, church, we wind up in idolatry. Not worshiping God, but bowing down to a conception of God that you find acceptable and worthy of worship. A God that you can control and manipulate, which is really no God at all. In truth, that kind of idolatry is what the people of God in this passage were seeking to repent of and reject. Remember what the continual confession of chapter 9 was. Over and over we read their confession that they and their forefathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commandments. The apex of which was their confession of that moment when their fathers made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. You see, the root of sin is idolatry. It's seen more clearly at some points than others, but the rejection of God's law, even when claiming to worship the God of the Bible, is to reject God Himself. And that is what the people were seeking to root out from among themselves in chapter 10. So, what did their repentance of idolatry look like? Well, the text says that they entered into an oath to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. But it goes on to highlight some of the specifics. And what you'll notice is that the the rest of the passage really breaks down into two sections. First, we're told of what they will not do. And second, we're told of what they will do. First, we read in verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So they're saying that they will abstain from marrying foreigners. But it, it should be said that they're not rejecting the idea of of marrying other ethnicities here. Rather, they're rejecting the practice of marrying anyone outside of God's covenant. This this comes straight from God's command in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. God says there, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me 
to serve other gods. Foreign people bring with them foreign gods and foreign conceptions of the one true God. Believers are called to worship God in such a way that all of life is oriented around and revolves around God. But those who don't know and love God have their own priorities. They have their own commitments. And these all inevitably compete with God. So, what results then is a a home that's divided in its loyalties. And where, where God does not have absolute rule and authority. This is perhaps most well documented in the life of Solomon. Even with all the knowledge of God that Solomon possessed, and all of the things that God used him to accomplish, Solomon took to himself foreign wives. And 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, gives us the final testimony of his life, saying, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Friends, John Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We don't need any help producing idols. It's it's a battle. It, It is the battle that the people of God fight continuously. So as a people set apart for God, we must not intentionally build a life that sets our homes up in a way that undermines the absolute rule and authority of God. And so, they said that they would abstain from intermarrying with foreigners. But intermarriage was not the only uh, abstention that they highlighted as a hallmark of their repentance and devotion to God. In verse 31, we read, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, this is another form of the rejection of idolatry because here the people are acknowledging that both their property and their provisions are not their own. All that they have is from God. God owns everything, and therefore they can trust God to provide all that they need. God instituted the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20. And as long as the Mosaic covenant was in place, it was to be kept. The Sabbath was another institution designed to orient people's lives around God. It simultaneously required God's people one day each week to take their attention away from laboring for daily provisions and turn their attention toward worshiping the Lord God, who was the true source of all of their provisions. It was a strange thing among the nations of the ancient Near East, which is why we read here that foreigners would come to Jerusalem on the Sabbath with goods and grain to sell. They would come ready to engage in commerce. Sabbath keeping set Israel apart in the midst of the world because it communicated what they believed. It said that 
Not only is our God worthy of our undivided attention and worship on this day, but we believe that He is the sovereign Lord to whom the world belongs. Whatever He wishes to to give us, He has said He will do it in six days while the world labors for seven. This was embraced to a heightened degree in the keeping of the Sabbath year. Look at the end of verse 31 again. It says, And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. In Exodus 23, and and with greater specificity in Leviticus 25, God commanded that every seventh year the land was not to be planted but given a rest. He made provisions for how Israel was to be fed. But nonetheless, this required their trust that the Lord could and would provide for them. And as they sought, now again, to separate themselves from the world and give themselves to the worship of God, they recommitted to obeying God in this Sabbath keeping. And while while we are new covenant Christians, not living under the Mosaic law anymore, the, the command to keep the Sabbath day and year offers several points of application for us. Chief among them is the call to unabashedly and unwaveringly orient our lives around the worship of God, trusting that He will provide all that we need. We should not anxiously fret over whatever sacrifices need to be made to walk in obedience to God. The Scriptures teach us that because God is sovereign, He will provide whatever is necessary and good for us. Our only concern should be that we are walking in obedience to Him at every step. As a result, if there are things that don't come to us, that means that God didn't see those things as good or necessary for us. This is what Jesus clearly teaches in Matthew chapter 6, saying, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Lord does not withhold from His children what is good and necessary for them. And it is completely within His divine power to give us what is good and necessary for us. So so the only question then is, whether we believe that enough to obey Him, even when it requires sacrifice. As the text progresses then to verse 32, the the author here begins to to shift the focus from their contrite hearts and and highlighting uh, what Israel would abstain from to focusing on their concentration on worship and what it is that they would give themselves to. Interestingly enough, the the whole of what remains in the chapter as the the highlight of what they will commit themselves to is concerning temple worship. In verse 32, what do we read? We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Verse 34, they cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of our God. 
Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. And so on and so forth. Verse 39 sums up this latter portion of their renewed commitment saying this, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And here it is, the summary of their commitment in this last paragraph. We will not neglect the house of our God. They commit the first portion of all that they have to the temple in Jerusalem so as to ensure that the temple ministry is is never interrupted. Now, the question may be asked, why is it that in the rededication of themselves to God, the, 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 the primary acts that were that they were concerned with doing, why is it that they were oriented around the temple? Why not make the personal aspects of God's law their focus? Why not a commitment to honesty? Or a commitment to not stealing? Why not a commitment to you know, integrity in business relations? After all, we saw earlier in the book that they had been at fault there. So why such a focus on the temple? And those are good questions. But in order to understand the focus on maintaining the ministry of the temple, we have to understand the importance of the temple under the Mosaic Covenant. In the Old Testament, the temple was central to the worship of God. By God's design, it was vital for maintaining the relationship between God and His people. God was painstakingly specific about how the temple was to be constructed and how it was to be ordered. Because the temple is where the presence of God dwelt among His people. It was there that His priests would offer the sacrifices that He prescribed so that His people could meet with Him there. God made clear that under the Mosaic Covenant, reconciliation with Him centered on the ongoing ministry of the temple. And if Israel was guilty of idolatry, which is the the dethroning of God, then how is it that this is to be rectified in Nehemiah 10? Well, it was in a revitalization of their commitment to keep the commands of God concerning temple worship. Theologically, we must understand that in the Mosaic Covenant, reconciliation between God and man demanded temple worship with its sacrifices and its offerings. Because we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the temple is where God dwelt. So that's where the sacrifices were to be made. It was necessary under the administration of the Old Covenant. We have to understand that theologically, but but practically there's something else at work here. If the primary thing that the Jewish people were repenting of was idolatry, the most necessary and effective strategy for combating idolatry is the elevation of the worship of God. Because through the elevation of God in worship, His people come to behold Him and adore Him. And that is the most effective strategy for combating sin. 
as a matter of pastoral counsel, church, please hear me and, and understand. The pathway to turning away from sin and defeating sin in your life is not to focus on your sin. Yes, we must come to see our sin for what it is, a heinous rejection of God and rebellion against God. But having seen that, the pathway to victory over sin is not in focusing on the sin, but to focus on the greatness of God in all of His revealed character. It's in savoring His omnipotent power and His omniscient wisdom. The pathway to victory of sin is is in savoring His glorious grace and His majestic beauty. The key to repentance is not simply turning from the wickedness of sin, but it's turning to behold the wondrous glory of God. And in the Old Testament, the wondrous glory of God was most clearly manifested in temple worship. Now you may be thinking, well, that makes a lot of sense as to why then they would put such a focus on the activities of the temple. But what does all that have to do with us today? And again, that's a good question. In fact, as New Covenant Christians... And reading this passage, that's the question we should be asking. What does this have to do with us today? And the answer to that lies in what the temple and all of its activities anticipated. Even by the time of the events of Nehemiah, the Israelites knew that the temple anticipated a greater and more final means of God dealing with the problem of sin and reconciling His people to Himself. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both had prophesied that God would make a new covenant with His people. In in Ezekiel 36, God promises, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So as a a part of the new covenant that God promises, He promises that His presence will no longer abide in the temple. Rather, God the Holy Spirit will actually come and abide in His people. But how that would happen, the Old Testament saints didn't know. It's only in the revelation of the New Testament that makes clear how God accomplishes this. And the teaching of the New Testament shows us that Christ is the fulfillment of all that temple worship anticipated. In fact, Jesus Himself teaches us that He became the true temple. In John chapter 2, you'll remember that iconic moment when Jesus violently cleanses the temple. And the Jews ask Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus there, standing in the midst of the temple, He answers them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John goes on to add as a point of commentary, He was speaking about the temple of His body. When he was therefore raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. 
So you see, Jesus is the true and greater temple. Under the old covenant, the the temple is where God dwelt. But Colossians 1 tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. And the rest of the New Testament then goes on to detail for us how Christ fulfills every aspect of temple worship. We're told that He is the true and greater priest. He is the true and final sacrifice for sin. His flesh, we're told, is the veil that separates the people from the presence of God. But when His body was broken and shattered, that veil was torn asunder. And through His substitutionary sacrifice, now the Spirit of God would come to indwell the people of God. No longer would the presence of God dwell in the temple. Because through Christ, the presence of God now dwelt within His people. And it's that understanding that that helps us make application of this text for the New Testament Christian. In light of the fact that God now indwells His people, the New Testament goes on to identify the church as the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 3 all testify to the reality that the corporate people of God that we call the church being united to Christ and indwelt with His Spirit is the temple of God. Now, God reconciles His people to Himself finally and fully in Christ. Yet, in a way that's somewhat mysterious to us, The presence of God is particularly made manifest in His body, the church. And understanding that, we can then draw out the implications of Nehemiah 10 for us today. What we see at the end of Nehemiah 10 is that the people of Israel served and sacrificed for the ongoing ministry of the temple because it was vital for their reconciliation with God. The people of Israel sought fellowship with God through the ministry of the temple because that's where God met with man. Now, under the new covenant, we are reconciled to God fully and finally in Christ. There's nothing that we can add to or perfect concerning the forgiveness of sins accomplished by Christ and His work on the cross. But, the Scripture is clear that while The temple is where God met with man under the old covenant. God now reconciles man to himself in Christ and specially dwells among his people in his church. So really there's there's one point of application to draw out from this. But, But that one point of application is really driven by two motivations. Quickly, the point of application is this. If the church is the temple of God, then we should serve and sacrifice for its ongoing ministry like the Israelites served and sacrificed for the ongoing ministry of the temple. And that service and sacrifice is motivated by two things. First, we recognize that if the presence of Christ is made particularly manifest in the church, then our serving and sacrifice in the church allows us to experience the presence of God in a way that's otherwise impossible. So we are motivated then to serve and sacrifice, first of all, for the sake of our own souls. 
But secondly, and, and I'll, I'll close with this, it's in recognizing the reality of God's presence in the church that we, we serve and sacrifice for the church so that through the ministry of the church, the world might meet God in Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 5, it's the church that's been given the message and the ministry of reconciliation between God and man. And speaking of the church, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The temple in the Old Covenant is where God met with man. Friends, the church now is where God meets with man in Christ. And it's our duty to see to it that the ministry of the church and the proclamation of the gospel goes forth. So it's our calling then to serve and sacrifice for that great and glorious otherworldly purpose. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We're, we're, we're grateful, Lord, for the work of Christ. Oh God, we do pray that in the hearing of Your Word this morning, Lord, that you would stir in us greater affections for Christ. Lord, we pray, God, that the ministry of your word to us would actually transform us. And that in seeing the great fulfillment of temple worship in the Lord Jesus himself, Lord, help us to treasure Christ and be conformed more to the image of Christ. We ask it now in his